Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning for worship. Today we're in the fifth week of our series entitled She Speaks. We're taking a look at some of the godly, faithful women in Scripture and what their lives have to teach, have to speak to us. And so, um, again, fifth week this week. Next Sunday, Sarah, uh, our women's ministry leader, is going to wrap the series up for us, kind of put a bow on it. She's talking about Rachel and Leah out of the Old Testament. So make sure you're here next week as we kind of conclude our summer series. Um, but this morning, we're going to... When she was a virgin, even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning for worship here at the Vista. Um, I just want to say a special thanks to Jared Johnson for leading us in worship. That was not Jordan. Uh, Jordan and his family are out of town this week, and so we're glad to have Jared. It's amazing to have uh, just gifted, talented people that can step in um, and lead us. And of course, our band, they do a phenomenal job week in and week out. So we're grateful to them. Thanks, Jared, uh, for being here to lead us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 8. We are in the fourth week of our series entitled She Speaks. This summer, we're taking a look at some very faithful, very godly women and what their lives have to teach or have to speak to us. Um, we've done this before, uh, looking at characters and studies throughout uh, Scripture. Um, we've looked at the disciples, um, all of which were, uh, were men. We looked at uh, some of the patriarchs years ago. We've looked at uh, a series we'd called Storytime where we looked at, at Noah and David and Jonah and some very prominent stories, all of which involved the main character as men. And so this summer, we wanted to explore some of the lives of some of these very faithful women. And that's what this series is all about. Again, we're in the fourth week. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a very prominent New Testament woman. Uh, her story is found, she is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. She, uh, you'll see this as we get into the, ser the sermon uh, particularly at the end, she is very prominent uh, a woman um, in, in regards to our Christian faith and, and who we are as believers today. Um, but she, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is often misunderstood. There's been a lot of extra biblical uh, sort of myth and legend that surrounds her. Her name is Mary Magdalene, and uh, we're going to kind of explore her life together. Um, Luke chapter 8 is where we are introduced to Mary Magdalene. Um, before I get into the text, though, um, I'll mention, uh, again, some of those extra-biblical, there's been a lot of myth and legend surrounding her. There were some Gnostic heresies that crept into the early church that began to uh, form um, almost a sort of cultish-like uh, uh, worship of, of Mary Magdalene, some Gnostic, some of the Gnostic uh, traditions, uh, even going so far as to say that she was some sort of an adversary of Peter, of course, which is, which is fiction. Uh, Dan Brown and his, of course, uh, book and then subsequent movie, The Da Vinci Code, revived some of those uh, long discredited Gnostic heresies when he, uh, the, the movie, of course, was about uh, Mary Magdalene, that she uh, secretly married Jesus, that they secretly had children, that the church then has been involved in this elaborate cover-up of Jesus' true descendants. And, uh, of course, um, all of which is fiction, none of which finds any basis in Scripture or any any uh, actual historical uh, text. It's all uh, just fabricated. And so, um, again, keeping the fact from the fiction. 
Even in Christendom, even, even uh, among believers, there has been sort of a push to, um, to put Mary Magdalene in some places in Scripture um, where it might say there was a woman or something happened, but it doesn't give the woman's name. There have been some that have said, oh, that's Mary Magdalene. But the Scripture doesn't say that. So, for example, in Luke 7, right before where we're going to read, there's a story of a woman who, uh, it, all it says is that she was a sinner and that she was broken over her sin, and so she's weeping, and it says that she begins to wipe uh, the feet of Jesus with her hair. And um, some have said, oh, that, that was Mary Magdalene. But again, there's nothing in, in the text to indicate that that was Mary Magdalene. In fact, it actually seems very unlikely that that would have been Mary Magdalene. Uh, Luke, of course, the writer of the gospel, he was a, a careful historian, and uh, he introduces her by name in Luke. Williams. Gail was a humanitarian aid worker in Afghanistan. She served in refugee camps, mainly with children with disabilities. And on October 20th, 2008, she was walking to work when two men pulled up beside her on a motorcycle, shot her six times, and then drove off. The Taliban later claimed credit for the killing, claiming that she was killed for spreading Christianity in Afghanistan. It's 2008. And this is, of course, a tale that is as old as time a tale found in most every culture and religion in the history of the world. And here's how it goes. See if this sounds familiar. Right? The, the gods are angry. The gods are always angry about something. You know, because the people are they're sinning too much or they're not worshiping enough or maybe the gods just woke up on the wrong side of the cloud. You know, but for whatever reason, the gods are angry and the gods are wrathful and so we're in trouble. And so the only way to appease the wrath of the gods is to offer up a sacrifice. So, we've got to appease the wrath of the gods by offering up a sacrifice, and you know what happens next, right? The most predictable thing imaginable. Right, we've got to offer up a sacrifice because the gods are angry, and so we start looking around for something else to sacrifice because the gods need a sacrifice, and it ain't going to be me, right? The gods need a sacrifice, and it's not going to be yours truly. So we start looking around for something we could sacrifice, that goat or that cow or that chicken or that bird or preferably that cat or that child, or typically that, that woman. That's how it usually went. The story of human history is the story of people in power sacrificing others, usually vulnerable others, to preserve their power. It's the story of human history. And all this is justified, we tell ourselves, because God has really grand, important purposes for me that require the sacrifice of other less important people. Familiar story? Yeah. Gail Williams was a sacrifice offered up to the gods by violent men who thought they were serving their God. She wasn't the first, and she certainly won't be the last. Which brings us to our text for this morning. A really sad and strange story from the book of Judges. I think the saddest, strangest story in the whole Bible. Happy July the 4th weekend. Um, and before we jump in, let's set the scene. The Israelites have been led into the promised land by Joshua. And so when Joshua dies, there's this enormous leadership vacuum. And uh, so because the Israelites at this point are this loose collection of tribes with no clear leader, they're in a foreign land surrounded by enemies. And so they're constantly being attacked, looking for help. And God's always raising up these leaders called the Judges. That's who the book of Judges are named after. Military leaders who God raises up to free Israel and fight against her enemies. And one of these judges was named Jephthah. All right, so we're going to read his story today in Judges 10, 
We'll pick it up in verse 17. It will be on the screen for you. Uh, if you did bring your Bible, which is always good, it is towards the front of the Old Testament, a few books in, about six, seven books in. Starting in verse 17. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of the Gileadites, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight for us against the sons of Ammon? Because he shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tav, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Now it came about that after a while, when the sons of Ammon fell, that she can save um, in some ways just like Jesus can save, which again just doesn't resonate with what Scripture tells us, right? That uh, Mary was a recipient of God's grace, not a dispenser of God's grace. Um, Hate me and drive me out from my father's house. So why have you come to me now that you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Well, for this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I then become your head, your king? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do... The last one sort of all-encompassing is that she is in some way divine that she is sort of a goddess, that she has characteristics much like God of omniscience and omnipresence, which again uh, is nowhere to be found in, in Scripture. Nowhere to be found in Scripture. In fact, um, we learn most of what we know about Mary from Luke chapter 1, the birth of Christ and how the angel appears to her. We'll look at that shortly. Mary only appears three other times in all of the ministry of Jesus. She, um, the gospel writers and Mary herself seem to be content to be in the background. Then she's never really spoken of past Acts chapter 1 when she's mentioned with a bunch of other followers who were praying together at Pentecost. After that, she's never mentioned in the letters to the churches, never, uh, never written about by Paul. And so it seems clear that the early church never sought to give her such spiritual uh, veneration as later traditions did. So... Again, there's a lot of information out there about Mary. Some of those things, all of those things, are actually not true. Who was Mary then? Well, Mary was a humble teenage woman. She was from a small peasant community in Galilee, the region of Galilee, in the city, the town of Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was a really poor town. Um, there were, it was not, not very big. There were, uh, it really wasn't thought of highly by anyone. I would say outsiders, but it wasn't even really thought of highly by insiders either, right? Like it's not one of those places you brag about being from. Nazareth was a small little podunk town. Um, you know, I remember, in fact, in the Gospels, when uh, Philip meets Jesus, um, he, goes to his, he goes to Nathaniel and he tells Nathaniel, I've met the Messiah. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. And if you remember, what does Nathaniel do? Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth, Right? That's like saying, I've met the Messiah, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's from Nolanville, right? You'd be going, 
sorry if you're from Nolanville, right? Like, I just offended everybody from Nolanville. Um, that's like, Na but Nazareth was not this glamorous town, right? It's, it wasn't thought of highly by other people. It was very much a humble town. Mary was very much a humble young woman. She was godly. She was a true worshiper of the one true God. She was betrothed to um, a hardworking young man, a righteous man, a carpenter named Joseph. Now, betrothal um, is very much a little, it's kind of like our engagement uh, period. Um, it, was, uh, it was an engagement, a formal engagement known as, known as Kiddushin. Um, and this was usually practiced for about a year, up to a year's time. And it was so formal that um, it was legally binding. So in order to leave uh, the Kiddushin, in order to leave that sort of betrothal, you would still have to file for and get a certificate of divorce. It was very formal like marriage and legally binding, um, but the couple during this period of time would stay in separate houses. They would have no physical, intimate contact whatsoever. And the purpose of Kiddushin was to show the fidelity of the couple. And it was during this period of time, this betrothal, this kiddushin, that the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary. We know that Mary had a sister. In John chapter 19, verse 25, we see Mary at the cross of Jesus standing next to her sister. So we know that she had a sister. We know then that Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, was also a relative of Mary in some way. Maybe she was a, a, an, a much older cousin. Most likely she was an aunt an aunt of Mary. Mary goes to visit her, as we'll see. And again, a lot of the information we have about Mary's heart and her character comes from Luke chapter 1. What we often see is the Christmas story, the Christmas story. And so I want to pick up there in Luke chapter 1 and read, uh, beginning in verse 26, as we are introduced to Mary. Um, incidentally, her story really begins about 700 years prior to this, in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would be a man and he would be born of a virgin woman. Born of a virgin woman. 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, Mary was prophesied about. People were waiting for the Messiah. Who is this man? Who is this person going to be? Who is the woman that he's going to be born from? And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Mary has some questions, right? She has some questions. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38 then is Mary's first response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, 
according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary gets this news. And it's a little bit troubling, right? She's a little bit fearful. Remember that she is most likely a young high school girl. And uh, she has some questions, and, and the angel graciously answers her questions, and then Mary responds. And the angel, part of what the angel said was that your, your relative, Elizabeth, is also pregnant. She was much older, really, again, says that she was called barren. Well, so what Mary does is she packs up and she goes to see her relative Elizabeth. Upon hearing the news, no doubt she needs someone to talk through this with. She needs to kind of unpack all this information. She needs to sort of uh, wrestle with this. She needs to share it with someone. And she goes to meet with her relative Elizabeth. Well, then after meeting with Elizabeth, we have what's known as the Magnificat. This is Mary's response of praise to what God is uh, doing through her. Beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with food, with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. We learn a lot about Mary from these very brief encounters. As I read uh, Mary's response back in verse 38, I thought about that verse a lot this week. I sort of meditated on that verse. I read it over and over and over and over again. And, and one thing that just sort of dawned on me about Mary's response, right after the angel gives her this really big, really life-altering news, was that Mary's response really is the key to discipleship. It really is the key to being a follower of Jesus. A lot of times we think discipleship is about either cognitive knowledge, right, learning more information, or working harder and doing more, right? I grew up in a church where we had discipleship training on Sunday nights. And, if, and essentially, uh, what that was was a class that you would go to every Sunday night where you did another study, where you learned more information, try to memorize Scripture, and, and, and you, tried to, you tried to learn what it meant uh, to, to follow Jesus. And it was really about cognitive knowledge. And listen, cognitive knowledge is important. It is important to, to read the Word and study the Word. And, and those are Bible studies. That is, that is a piece of discipleship, but it's really not the foundation of discipleship. Some people think, no, discipleship is about doing more, working harder, serving more, Loving the widow and the orphan and being on mission, if, as you do those things, that's really the heart of discipleship. And I would say, listen, doing, doing those things is really important. It's really good. It is a piece of discipleship, and God will teach you and grow you along the way. And so absolutely, get out there and do something. That, that is John's way of saying he smoked Peter. It's John's way of saying he is way more athletic than that guy, right? A little, little subtle jab right there in the text, right? Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I've said this before as well. 
One of the big arguments for what happened to the body of Jesus early on was that it was stolen. Someone stole the body of Jesus. And what I've always said is, that's a pretty tidy burglar, is it not? His body was wrapped in like a hundred pounds of linens, and whoever stole the body took time to unwrap him in the tomb, fold them all up really nice and neat, and place them there. Uh, I mean, listen, if that kind of burglar wants to rob my house, have at it. I'll leave the vacuum out for you, some stuff to dust with, like... Just clean the place up, right? Like, you're welcome, right? The, listen, the, the, the linens and wrappings are folded neatly there. Peter sees those things, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Peter and John get there. They look in. They see everything folded up. Jesus isn't there. I don't know how long they stand there. But they stand for a little bit, and then at whatever point, they decide, all right, nothing else to see. Let's go home. They, they go home. Notice who stays, verse 11. But Mary Magdalene stood, weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there by the body of Je- where, where the body of Jesus had been laid. At one, uh, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Very early in the morning, um, she's been crying, her eyes are filled with tears. Jesus doesn't look the way that he looked when she last saw him, his bloodied, beaten, disfigured body. He's now in a glorified state, and she doesn't recognize him as Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. All Jesus had to say was her name. She recognized who he was. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. She is such a prominent woman in the story of the Christian faith. Mary was the last one at the cross. She's the one that followed Joseph of Arimathea to see where the body was laid. Early the next morning, Mary is the first one to the tomb. Mary is the one to which uh, she sees the resurrected Jesus first. She is the first one that Jesus reveals himself to after his resurrection, and then she's the first one to go and tell others about the resurrection. She really is a rather remarkable woman who plays an integral part in our whole faith. I would remind you that Christianity as a religion is not based on a book. It's not based on a book. Like, listen, I'm a Bible guy. I love the Word of God. I believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. Week in and week out, Austin and I and whoever gets on this stage, we're going to preach and teach from the Word of God um, because we hold it in a very high regard and and we do see it as authoritative and everything. But, But make no mistake, Christianity is not founded on a book. It's not. Christianity is not even founded solely on a person. Some of you might say, yes, it is. It's founded on Jesus. Okay, but Jesus lived decades 
before there was ever Christianity. And I would submit to you that if Jesus stays in the grave, that he would just simply be known as another maybe good guy that did some really cool stuff that died at the hands of the Roman Empire. Make no mistake, Christianity as a religion is based on an event. It's based on an event. It gets its starting point in an event. That event is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of our faith. It's literally the beginning of our religion. And then at the centerpiece of the story is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is the first one to witness the event that our whole faith is based on, and she's the first one then to speak of this event to other people. Isn't that remarkable? Like, this is part of how I believe you know Scripture is completely true and accurate. Because if man had just made this story up, there's no way that they would have drawn it up this way. There's no way they have Jesus rise from the grave, and then the first person that he tells and is responsible for telling others is the formerly demon-possessed woman right? I mean, I would remind you that women's, uh, they didn't have a lot of rights back then. Like, their testimony didn't even hold weight in a court of law. And not only is she a woman, she was a formerly demon-possessed woman that everybody thought was crazy. And she's the one that Jesus appears to, and she's the one that goes and speaks this life-giving information to the disciples and to others. I love the fact that Mary's story, right? They're hanging out with their friends. They're talking. Like, what'd you do last night? Oh, nothing big. Just an angel showed up and told me I'm going to bear God. You know, nothing, nothing big. What about you? <laughs> right? Like, this is a big deal. And she could have boasted. She could have been really proud and pointed to me. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm favored. But the very people she was trying to serve and love. And we remember Jephthah's daughter, a girl murdered by the very man in this world who was most supposed to protect her. And we remember in those stories that in the most important moment in the history of the world, God did our lives the same way. So God, we pray that you'd give us grace for that, give us strength, give us courage to take those risks, to step out of our comfort zone and to be sheep among wolves. And we pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you just a moment to respond as we always... After she sees Jesus and you see the joy on her face, the expression, the hope that is there as she rushes to then speak, to tell this great news, this life-giving news to everybody else. And again, I'm reminded that the Jesus that transformed her life is still in the business of transforming our lives that Mary could come to Jesus as she was, but Mary didn't stay as she was. She allowed Jesus in spirit and trembles at my word. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility in God's people is attractive to God. And Mary puts this on full display. She had every right, every reason probably to boast about God choosing her, and yet she chooses to walk in humility. Mary has a lot to teach us. She's an unbelievable godly woman. I mentioned already that, again, she only appears three times in all of the ministry of Jesus. Once in Cana at a wedding, Jesus performs his very first miracle. Mary is there um, when the, they run out of wine. Mary approaches Jesus. Apparently, Mary was some sort of a host for this wedding. We see her then a little bit later um, as Jesus' ministry demands get to be a lot. It says that his family was worried about him. His ministry demands were such that he wasn't even able to eat. 
and he was, uh, there was a lot going on. And so his family tries to stage this like intervention where they, they go to him and they're going to try to pull him away. And essentially Jesus like rebukes his family. He's like, no, I'm going to be about my father's business, right? And then the final time we see Mary in the ministry of Jesus in the life of Jesus, the author, he doesn't sort of sweep under the rug or hide the fact that Mary was possessed by demons. It's a detail that he chooses to leave in there, and God leaving that detail in the text, it teaches us so much about what